Well, good morning and welcome to Furrings. How are you guys doing this morning? You doing good? Awesome, awesome. My name is Brandon Yates. I'm the student pastor here at Front Range. And whether you're joining us in the room or you're online or brave enough to be in the courtyard, it's not that cold. It's actually pretty nice. Uh, we're just glad that you are here. And if this is your first time, uh, our desire is that Front Range could become a home for you and your family. We're just a church uh, that desires to serve people and to help people build community, discover their purpose, and grow in their faith in Jesus. I want to let you know real quick, uh, everybody say next week. Next week, we are online only, so you can join us at our normal service times, 9 and 10.30, at one of our streaming platforms on our website, on YouTube, or on Facebook. Uh, so we're excited to be with you online only, so don't forget that. Hey, today we are starting a new series called This is the Kingdom. Everybody say, it's the kingdom. Team participation, I love it. Where we're going to be looking at the scriptures and we're going to look at what does it actually mean to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, throughout scriptures, we see this word kingdom a lot, and it's something that we don't necessarily talk about uh, a lot in today's world. It's not really a word we use on a daily basis, but in scripture, it's used 124 times when specifically talking about the kingdom of God, the reign of the kingdom of God, the rule of the kingdom of God. What does it look like to actually live in that kingdom? And so for the next few weeks, we're just going to dive in and figure out what does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to live in that kingdom. Before we dive in, let's take a second and pray real quick. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you that you are a good God who gives good gifts. God, we thank you that you are here. And God, I pray that whatever we walked into this room with, whatever we're dealing with, watching online, I pray that you would be with us, that you would be near. God, that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would be made famous in our world. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. Hey, so uh, my wife and I, Jackie, we've been married for 13 years now. And when we were first married, we uh, had the opportunity to go to Magic Kingdom. Anybody been to Magic Kingdom before? Uh, Magic Kingdom is amazing. Growing up, I never went to Disney. Um, I never went to Magic Kingdom or anything like that. Like, all I had was Eliches. Like, it was kind of like that sad, depressed, like stepbrother of Elitch's or of Disney, like it wasn't, it wasn't that great, right? But, but Disney, growing up, I always heard it described as one thing. Magic Kingdom was always described as one thing. And what was that? The happiest place on earth. The happiest place on earth. And so I was so excited, right? Walt Disney years ago had this vision to create this place where people could experience joy and excitement and be happy and it would be magical, right? It was so exciting. I was so ready. And so me and my wife, we went without kids. Oh, that's the way to do it, right? That's the way to do it. We went without kids. And, and it, here's the thing. When we went, we rode the Disney bus to Disney in the morning, right? And man, every single kid was so excited. All the parents were smiling and high-fiving each other, making dreams come true. Like it was just like, ah, it was amazing. And then you get to the front gates of it, right? And they do this whole show as they open up and the kids are screaming and dancing and my wife is over there crying. I'm like, why are you crying? You're an adult. She's like, shut up. So it's magical. And throughout the day, like the excellence in Magic Kingdom, right? It's just like top notch. They have their own paint. Like it's amazing. It's amazing. And everybody's so excited. Until about 9.30 at night or so. 
And I don't know if you've ever had the curse of, sorry, the privilege of riding a, a Disney bus back to your hotel at the end of the night. It is anything but the happiest place on earth. It is the maddest place on earth. I've never seen so many adults yelling at crying kids in one confined place as a bus leaving Disney. Like, it changes. It's totally opposite, right? But that's what Disney, when he created this idea of what he wanted for Walt Disney World, for Magic Kingdom, was this idea where people could experience joy, where people could experience happiness. He had this vision and this purpose, and I feel like in today's world, we're... We're created to live in a very similar purpose, and yet we don't. Yet we live in something far off from the true happiness that we're actually supposed to be living in. We're going to uh, take a look at quite a few scriptures today, but we're going to start out in Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, uh, we see Jesus led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. And Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and at the end, the devil comes to Jesus, and he begins to tempt him. And in one of these ways, he takes him to this high mountaintop, and he's like, hey, Jesus, look at all of the kingdoms of the world. And I just imagine him like painting like different pictures and, and seeing all these things, and he's like, hey, Jesus, huh, huh, all these things, they could be yours if you just worship me, right? Like he's like, yeah, does that sound good? Right? But Jesus doesn't bite. He, he's not enticed. In fact, he just says, hey, away from me, Satan. And then he quotes scripture. He quotes scripture at him. And this is what it says. Right after that, he does something. And I believe that, that something in this moment was solidified in the heart of Jesus because it changes. Right after this moment, Jesus does something uh, that, that would become the foundation of his ministry. Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time on, speaking of the time of the temptation, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And this is what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, has come near. And just a few verses later, in verse 27, Jesus says this. It says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sick among the poor. He began to preach the kingdom of God, and he never stopped. He never stopped going back to the kingdom of God. So we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God can be this huge, big idea, but in studying for this series, we found one theologian who kind of broke it down into one simple statement that we are going to hold on to throughout the course of this series, and this is how he defines the kingdom of God. He says it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. Write that down. Hold on to that for the next several weeks, because that's what we're going to be diving into, God's people in God's place under God's rule. So let's take a look at each of these. The first one is God's people. Who are God's people? Throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, people are identified as God's people by their willingness to submit completely and fully to God, to submit completely and fully to the Lordship of Jesus. Anyone who has accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior becomes a part of the family of God. 
this relationship, becoming part of the family, it's, it's not uh, contingent on your attendance to church. It's not contingent on anything that you can offer, the good things that you've done with your life. It's solely the acceptance of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and submission to him. That's how we identify who are the people of God. That's how we see it. And are we following him alone? Paul actually says this in 2 Corinthians 6.16. It says, I will live with them. This is God. It says, quoted, I will live with them and will walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Then in Mark chapter 8 verse 38, it says this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my worlds in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them. When he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. And that's why Paul in Romans 1.16 says that I will not be ashamed. He's going back to what Jesus says. He says, I will not be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The power that brings salvation to every single person of God. Are we receiving that? Are we submitting to it? These verses include a choice that has to be made. To become a person of God, to become brought into the family, to be people of God, we have to make the choice. You have to make the choice. It's not on your parents. It's not on your upbringing. It's not on your current circumstances. It's on you choosing to submit to the lordship of Jesus. That's how we become the people of God. And when we become the people of God, we receive something that changes everything for us. Just like Sherry said, a group of us, including my wife and I, came back from Costa Rica last Saturday night. I got home at 2 a.m. It was awesome. But the trip was fantastic. We spent a week out there caring for people and loving on people and serving the needy. But one of the most impactful things, I think, for the whole team was when we got to go to a house known as Casa Pan. And it was, it's, it's led by uh, one Doña Melba right here in the pink. Uh, you can see her. And uh, Doña Melba has a phenomenal story. See, at 13 years old, Doña Melba adopted her first child. You might be thinking, wow, that's wild. Yeah, it is. It's wild. And for the next 57 years, her and her husband, who's standing right next to one of uh, their children, adopted 150 kids. I'm not saying they took in 150 kids over that time. No, they legally adopted 150 kids over the course of 57 years. See, at one point, when Doña Melba adopted her first kid, they were in the hospital, and one of the kids was sick, and she just prayed to God and said, said God, bring healing to, to my son. And God healed their son, and she said, you know what, I'm never going to turn away another kid in my, as long as I live. I'm never going to turn away another kid. And so every time a kid was brought, she'd say yes, she'd say yes, she'd say yes. And see, for, for, for Doña Melba, it wasn't just about giving them a place to stay. It wasn't just about giving them food to eat. It was giving them a family. It was giving them a new identity. It was giving them a new purpose. It was giving them a new name. It was giving them a place that they could call their home where they could be a part of something bigger than themselves. Seeing this and being able to be there and serve them and hang out and play with the kids, it was wild because those kids were so happy. 
I don't know how she does it right now. I think she has about 35 kids living in their house right now currently, and I struggle with three. Like, she's a saint. Like, hands down. Right? It's changed everything for these kids. And not unlike Dona Melba's family, the kingdom of God is very similar, that when we are brought into the kingdom of God, when we are brought into being his people, not only do we change a little bit, but it changes the whole course of our lives if we truly submit to being the people of God. And when we're brought into that family, not only do we get a new identity, a, a purpose, a vision for our lives, but we're given a, a new responsibility as a citizen of the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, God wants to rescue humans in order that humans might be his rescuing stewards over creation. When we're brought into the family of God, when we're called God's people, it's not just so that we can sit back and relax in his house, but it's to receive a new assignment, to see other people brought into the fold, brought into the hope, brought into the healing. The second thing we see it's God's place. What is God's place? Well, if we've read scripture, and most of us have, or we've probably even seen this, right? The first thing that the Bible says in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth belongs to him. Right? He, he reigns and rules over it. He's already won the battle. And yes, as we talked about at the beginning of the year, the, the devil, the enemy, has dominion and has rule right now over this earth. But God has a restoration, a redeeming plan. The moment the fall happened in the Garden of Eden, the redemption story began to be told. And Jesus is coming for each and every one of us, for every sin, for every evil, for every regret, for every sadness and sickness. He has a plan to bring redemption in his place. Why? Because he created it for a purpose. He created it for his people. He created it for a place to be in communion with God. And everything will be brought back into alignment and back into purpose the way that God originally intended it to be. So God's people, under God's place, or in God's place, under God's rule. God's rule. He's the king of the kingdom, right? God is the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom of God in flesh. And the body of Christ is a visible, visible tangible embassy for that kingdom. This place is, is an embassy where broken and hurting people can come in and find safety, find healing, find hope, find redemption. God's rule. At the end of this series, we're going to be looking at uh, this Sermon on the Mount a little bit more uh, in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus finishes up this Sermon on the Mount um, with a, a story that he paints. Uh, we actually sang about it in, in one of the worship songs. I didn't even know that was happening. That's cool. So he, he paints this picture of what does it look like for somebody to build their house on a rock or build their house on the sand. And in Matthew 7, 24, it says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them in to practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, right? It says that the winds blew and the, the rain beat against the house and the waters rose and, and yet the house didn't fall. And then he says, he continues and he says, but if you're a fool and you hear these words of mine and you do not put them into practice, 
those same winds, those same rains, those same waters will rise. And because you have built your house on anything but the rock, it will come crashing down. To live in the kingdom of God means that each and every one of us by ourselves has a responsibility to submit to the lordship of Jesus over our lives. That means what Jesus says, that what he speaks, that what he says, that we must obey those things. When we read in scripture, the things that we read in scriptures, these just aren't great thoughts or great ideas. These, these should be taken as orders that we obey, that we dive into, that we study, that we hide in our hearts, that we might not sin against God, but to submit to the rule of Jesus. It means that when he speaks, we obey. When he speaks, we move. What we call, or what we, what we do when we respond to God in this rule, is the kingdom of our lives. It's our responsibility, not just to hold it here, but to take it throughout the world. And to show the better life of the kingdom of God, the better blessings that come when we actually live in submission to God, not by force or against people's will, but to show them by representation of what our lives actually look like in the picture of the kingdom that it paints that our God is a good God and that we receive blessing and that no matter the ups or the downs or the good or the bad, it doesn't change the character of God or my submission to his rule in my life. It's been said that... that um, Every philosopher, every psychiatrist or counselor or self-help book that if you took all of those things, got rid of all the junk and melted them down into kind of their pure essence, that we would be left with a cheap imitation of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' most famous teaching. And uh, today and in this series, we're talking about the Beatitudes part of this series. This is, this is Jesus' declaration of his kingdom. Okay, and so we're going to dive in right now, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verses 1 through 4. And it says this, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Okay, this wasn't just the 12. At this time, really, anyone who said they were a follower of Jesus considered themselves a disciple. Each and every one of us were followers of Jesus. We are considered disciples. So there was a crowd of hundreds of people who came and sat at the feet of Jesus to hear him teach these things. In verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's the, the Beatitudes. Jesus right here, he sets forth uh, both the, the character and the aspiration of what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. These are the marks that we should strive for. Now the word here for blessing that we're going to see throughout this series and throughout the Beatitudes is this Greek word. I'm going to butcher it, but it's mukarios. And it, it literally means to be happy. It literally means to be happy. And so Jesus here is teaching. He's saying that in the kingdom of God, God wants you to be happy. Isn't that great? But the reality is I think that sometimes we misinterpret what the happiness of God is and what we should actually expect in life. 
oftentimes our search for happiness goes completely against what Jesus actually means in these verses. And what we see throughout scripture, God desires, yes, that we would be happy and find true happiness in the kingdom of God. But oftentimes it's completely contradictory to what we find in this world. The happiness here is completely independent. It's completely separate from all of our life circumstances. This happiness, this blessing that he's speaking of has nothing to do with the ups and the downs of life. It's not what he's talking about. He starts this off by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or Luke starts it off in, in his version, he says, blessed are the poor. But let's be very clear what we're talking about here. Jesus isn't saying, hey, who has the least money in your bank account? You're the most blessed. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. It has nothing to do with money here. It has nothing to do with any of it. Rather, a poor in spirit is a confession of our lowly state. It's a confession of our sinful and rebellious nature. That we're without moral standards that we by ourselves cannot make ourselves right or anyone else right before God. He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Such an uplifting place to start, right? Like, we're all terrible, yeah, right? But it's, 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 it's a place that Jesus very intentionally started with, I believe. Because this is where we all start with God. This is where we all must have that first realization that we're not going to come to God unless we realize that we can't do it on our own. That we can't do it on our own understanding or our own strength. Charles Spurgeon, he says this. He says, a ladder, if it is to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground or feeble climbers will not be able to mount that first step. Some of us, we've come into this place. Some of us, we're watching online and we've come into this place and we're watching, but we feel like God's standard, his bar is right here and I can't get up to that. I'm too weak. I'm too broken. The standard is so low. It's first recognizing that I'm broken, that I'm sinful, that I need his help. Blessed are those who recognize their need for a savior. Blessed are we who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is ours. It's not blessed are the holy. It's not blessed are the super spiritual or the, the proud or the ones who have it all together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Every one of us needs to start with this realization. It's an absolute prerequisite to being brought into the kingdom of God, to becoming part of God's people, to know our state. Call the poor spirit is placed first because it, it, it puts all of the following statements in the Beatitudes into perspective. Because without realizing this, everything else that he talks about in the coming verses becomes unattainable. We can't mourn if we're not poor in spirit. We can't be meek if we're not first humble, if we don't recognize our own need for God, we're never gonna hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if we aren't hungering and thirsting for righteousness right now, I'm probably gonna guess that there's some sort of pride issue welling up in our hearts that I've got this, that I can do this. 
Jesus continues in this verse and he says, but blessed are those who mourn. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn. Again, we're gonna be clear about what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying in this specific verse. He isn't simply saying that those who are sad are gonna be comforted. Jesus isn't saying that you're mourning something, you're sad, you're gonna be comforted. Do I believe that that is the case in the kingdom of God? Absolutely. I've experienced it throughout scripture. We see that. We see that statement. We see that fulfilled. Isaiah 9, 7, it says, says in reference to Jesus that he is the prince of peace. And I don't know about you, but when you're going through something, nothing is quite as comforting as the peace of God. So I do believe that. But in this statement right here, what Jesus is actually talking about is he is saying that those people who are blessed, those who mourn, are those who mourn over their deficit, those who mourn over their sin. Those who recognize I'm right here and I don't want to be here anymore. This isn't who I'm called to be. And it breaks me apart. So God, you got to do something. And he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. When was the last time our lifestyle caused us to mourn before God? This Greek word here indicates an intense mourning, a deep, gut-wrenching mourning. Paul describes this mourning in 2 Corinthians 7.10, and he says, Godly sorrow, godly sorrow, mourning, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Blessed are those who mourn, and Jesus continues, says, for they will be comforted. For they will be comforted. Those who mourn over their sin, they'll find a comfort. They'll find a peace. Why? Because our inheritance as sons and daughters of the King Most High, as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have an access to his peace, to his comfort, to his forgiveness. When we receive what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we find comfort in that forgiveness, knowing that we aren't judged for our sins when we've received the forgiveness, but they've been washed completely away. This comfort means that we're encouraged in the body of Christ, that we're strengthened in the body of Christ, that we're instructed, that we're taught that, hey, this isn't the best way for you. I have a better way. I have a better purpose. See, God allows this mourning over our sins into our life as a pathway to healing, as a pathway to redemption. The mourning is not the final destination. It's just used on the pathway to bring healing, to bring salvation. So where are you today? Maybe you walked into this place, you're watching online, and you're pretty proud in spirit. Maybe today God is saying, you're proud in spirit. Humble yourself. Become poor in spirit. Some of us, maybe we walked into this place having never given our allegiance, never, never proclaimed our belief in God, never, never, never made that confession that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And in this moment, God is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and weak and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you comfort. I will give you peace. But there has to be a recognition within your own soul, within your own heart, to recognize that that's what you need. Maybe you've never done that, so for the first time, that's what God's calling you to do today. But maybe, maybe you're just in this place and you're like, 
I've just been a really, really bad citizen of the kingdom of God. And I want to take this serious. I want to step into the fullness of this calling. Jesus' most famous message, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who recognize the state of their soul. Blessed are those who recognize their need for Jesus. Why? When we recognize that need, we receive the free gift of salvation. And it isn't until that moment that we do. Happy are those who choose to submit to the kingdom of God and the lordship in his life. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. And God, we thank you again that you are good, that you are faithful. God, I thank you that you see us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sin. God, I thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross to pay the debt owed for my sin. And that you desire to know me and to be known by me. So God, I pray for each and every one of us in this room and watching online. Whatever we walked in with, there's pride, anger, whatever sin we have looming over our lives, God, would you bring a conviction into our hearts in this moment to recognize it, to deal with it, and to make a choice to live completely and totally sold out for you. With all heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you walked into this place and you never, like I said, submitted your life to Jesus but you're in this place and you're feeling that nudge that you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, that you want to submit to the lordship of Jesus and maybe the Holy Spirit is doing something in your life and you want to give your life completely and totally over to Jesus. If that's you in the room, I just want to encourage you to just raise your hand just so I can pray with you. And then if you're online, there's a way to indicate that online as well. But I just want to pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. God, I thank you for the hands that are raised. God, I pray that you would reveal your grace and love in a powerful way. God, we celebrate with these people who have chosen to submit to the lordship of Jesus in their life. And God, we thank you that they are now a part of the kingdom of God. God, I pray that this moment will not just end after this service, but for each and every one of them. God, would it begin to be a new lifestyle journey? Would it begin to be a new heart journey? Would you begin to bring healing and calling and peace into their lives? Jesus, we love you. We worship you.